On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pot Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual, but we're doing something a little different. You asked, and we delivered. We are going to have a roundtable discussion about all the Democratic candidates. So it's all of us. We talk about one piece of news. It's about the elections. It's important. Uh, but we want to talk about the whole field before Super Tuesday. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at SleepyDag, ClintSmithTheThird.com, <laughs> dot org. It's not even dot com. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> and this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So, y'all, there was a fight in Vegas between the last time we recorded and today. And I'm not talking about the fight in the boxing ring, if you know what I mean. I'm clearly, <laughs> I'm clearly talking about the knockdown drag out situation on stage at the Paris Las Vegas during the Democratic debate. I mean, just purely from a comedic standpoint, this Dem debate paid off in ways that the previous five have not. Because, oh my God, the bars that were dropped, the gauntlets that were thrown, the amount of back and forth between all of the candidates was fascinating. And the gloves were off. It probably it wasn't even like a boxing fight. It was MMA style, like just all in. Oh, Elizabeth and Elizabeth Warren, Warren was the definitive winner. This was all Elizabeth Warren. I was like, whoo, Liz. She came out swinging. She was like coming out swinging. Turn. I, I love that they put her next to Bloomberg. Was that? I don't know if it was intentional. Did she draw straws? Like, how do they organize that? Give him to me. Yeah, she just turns over. I want him. Like, looks at him and just like knocks him out. You know, in front of the world, the like the ninth richest person in in the country or the world looks at him like doesn't waste any time and just like completely knocks him out in like two lines. I think she was like, I think she was in the green room, kind of like how we used to be in the lunchroom as kids, like trading food until we got the thing that we really wanted. Like you got to trade up for this and then trade up for that. And then you finally get the one that you really want. I feel like she did that for the spot. Because if you go back and you watch the beginning of the debate, the early matchup very clearly was Bernie and Bloomberg. And they split screen the two of them and they're asked the, the moderators are asking a question of Bernie about Bloomberg and they they like pit the two of them against each other immediately. And 30 seconds into Bernie's answer, Elizabeth's hand goes up and she was I was as soon as that hand went up, I was like, oh, she's about to give it to him. It's coming. It's here. I want every bit of it injected into my veins. I was so ready for her to take it to him. And she did. <laughs> What's great about her, too, is that her delivery is just so solid. Like, she's, like, perfected the, like, this is intense, but I'm not yelling. Because some of the people on stage, they're, like, yelling. You're like, okay, this is, I'm, like, losing the message because you're screaming. Or, like, you know, Klobuchar got all worked up. You're like, you're calling me dumb. It's like, mm, he didn't call you dumb, but he did remind the world, again, that you did not know the president of Mexico. But she just, like, has mastered the... Can we talk about... I was actually embarrassed for Klobuchar when she did that self-trivia question thing. 
Well, she's like, how many people are in the Knesset? Da-da-da. You're like, Amy, you can't ask yourself the questions and answer them as some like example of you being well-informed. <laughs> I have not seen a, a hatred like the hatred I saw between Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. And I can't tell how much it's like coming from both sides. But like Amy, Amy was ready to sock that man. She was ready to knock him out. I, 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 re- I was watching and I was like, she's really about to punch this man. She's about to knock him in his jaw. With his smug McKenzie self. I don't know if she was going to punch him as much as she was going to give him that, like, maternal, like, the, the maternal joint. Like, you know, moms don't, like, punch young men when they get out of, out of line. Or, like, I thought she was going to, like, grab him by the collar yeah. and be like, look here, young no, man. Real. Have a seat. <laughs> Humble thyself. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, geez. It was so clear that no one has talked to Mike Bloomberg like that in, like, 40 years, if ever. Right? This man got $60 billion, ninth richest person in the world. When you are that rich, nobody talks honestly to you. Nobody speaks with that. Nobody comes for you because people need your money or they know that you can ruin them in a range of other ways. But it's also interesting, right? Because it demonstrates the the dissonance between like how someone is able to portray themselves through ads and then like how they look live and in person when somebody is outlined the redlining the NDAs, the stop and frisk. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this more, but it was laid out there and it needs to be, and it should have been. But I, I, I just had a moment where I was like, nobody's ever talked to him like that. And if nothing else, I'm glad that somebody finally did. And that's the thing. It's like this election is like fundamentally about who is going to hold wealthy, elite interests and some of the most privileged people in society accountable for the ways in which they've just structured the economy, structured our political system to their own advantage. And I think Warren demonstrated that she can do that, right? And she did do that. Uh, And it didn't take her longer than like three minutes to do that. And I think that that was really important for, for a lot of people to just see and just experience, because I think that's ultimately a key skill that we would be lucky to have in the White House. You know, Bloomberg was also like oddly maybe or surprisingly unprepared. You know, I realized when I saw him on stage that I, I literally had never seen him speak before. And then he starts talking. I'm like, wow, he is just he just walked up here. Like, I'm shocked that he got through all those terms as mayor. Like, we've never heard from this guy, like never seen him deliver any. I've never seen this man interview, but he was just out of his depth. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, this episode airs on Tuesday, the night of the next debate. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what he brings on this one and who he swings after, considering he's spending so much money uh, to put his name out there. I do think what I found most fascinating about, you're right, his almost surprising lack of preparedness is that I was actually really offended by it because it felt like having to stand up for your values, having to explain your past, having to declare your plan, having to communicate with the American people was a nuisance to him. Something that was a hurdle to get over rather than an important step in the democratic process. So why prepare when I can just buy ads and give whatever message I want without ever having to be held to account to a specific answer? Why, you know, get out there and really meet people if I can just inundate you with my image and my name so much so that I can ride name recognition all the way to the White House? I was actually deeply offended because it felt like 
he was standing up there saying, I've been able to buy my way onto this stage. So why would I need to prepare? Why can't I just buy my way into the White House? And I am, I've said before that I'm committed to trying to get Trump out of office. But Bloomberg is a really, 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 really hard sell for me, especially not because of, but especially after that debate performance. If he had come through and had some reasonable answer to the things that he was held account on, and a reasonable answer would have included sincere apology, acknowledgement of his behaviors, both around stop and frisk and, let's be clear, around the several NDAs that he had that women in his company had been forced to sign. If he had come with some kind of acknowledgement and apology and a plan for how things were going to run differently, then like, at the very least, I would be open to like, Nah, I'm lying. I probably wouldn't have listened to it that much. But at least he wouldn't have. At least he wouldn't have offended me as a a believer in democracy and as a voter, um, as somebody who believes that my vote is valuable and therefore candidates should have to earn it. It just doesn't feel like he's approaching it that way. And I could be wrong, but that's certainly how it all read to me. Um, and at the end of the day, like this is all just in too serious for anybody to get up there in a cavalier manner whatsoever. Um, so I'm I was deeply disturbed by what I read into his debate performance and his lack of preparedness. And it was just a reminder the conversations about Bloomberg, and I think several conversations on that stage, were a reminder that we don't need to just worry about how someone wins and whether or not they can win, but how they will govern. And if they run businesses, organizations, or campaigns that are dysfunctional, not inclusive, that create hostile work environments, then that is how they will run the country because the past is in Indeed, prologue. And I just think that we need to continue to pay attention to not just who can win, but also who can govern effectively and with the kind of values that we want. So we're going to do a, a bit of a different uh, take on today. We've had several folks request of us a roundtable talking about all of the Democratic primary candidates that are left. And if you are tuning in today and you have requested that, your request is being granted. So we're just going to have some casual conversation about what we think about where they stand, the values that they hold, whether or not we see them as doing positive things for the country moving forward. And just as a reminder, this This process is absolutely sacred. I was really pleased to see that the state of North Dakota and several American Indian tribes in North Dakota have settled a voter ID lawsuit, or a couple of them actually, in favor of the indigenous people across that land. The suits essentially were brought by the Spirit Lake Nation and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe uh, and several individual voters who were contesting state laws that mandated voter IDs. The reason why this is incredibly discriminatory in indigenous communities is the fact that there are many ways in which indigenous people have been prevented from gaining access to traditional identification documents. And a lot of folks on tribal lands do not have regular street addresses. People have P.O. boxes um, and other forms of ID that previously were not meeting the uh, mandate set by the state. And so the agreement comes right after the North Dakota governor formally approved emergency rules that does a number of things, but in particular will recognize various forms of tribal identification. And this new consent decree promises that North Dakota will, quote, ensure all Native Americans who are qualified electors can vote, 
relieve certain burdens on tribes related to determining residential street addresses for their tribal members and issuing tribal IDs. So as we continue this conversation on these presidential candidates, just a reminder that none of us should take this for granted. Yes, we speak about these things jovially, but um, sometimes that's because we need to laugh to keep from crying. And sometimes that's because we should never forget that joy is an important part of life. But obviously, this decision before us and the process that lays it out is incredibly important. One of the things I want to bring up about voter ID is that also recently uh, there was a three-judge panel, uh, an appeals court, that overturned the North Carolina voter ID law, which is a good thing. What the court noted unanimously is that the law had racially discriminatory intent. And this is how insidious the GOP has been around voting, because as you know, if more people vote, the Dems will always win. So the Republicans have two options. They either convert people to the party or they suppress the vote. And they are clearly not converting people of color to the party. Uh, They're not growing the Republican base. They are suppressing the vote on the left. But one of the things that the law did in North Carolina that got overturned that's so wild is that they actually banned um, the one of the goals was to ban public assistance IDs. And the rationale from the Republicans was that public assistance IDs shouldn't be allowed because the federal government makes the rules for those IDs. So the reliability of those IDs could not be validated by state officials. You're like, what? And at the same time, they allowed military IDs, which obviously are made by the federal government, and just like ignored that rationale. So like they, it was explicitly about race in North Carolina, and we see this happening all over. So shout out that these laws are actually being undone. Yeah, and just building on that, there was also a decision this past week around Florida, which established that it is actually not okay to ban people from being able to vote just because they owe fines and fees that they're not able to pay. This is all rapidly unfolding, but across the three of these decisions, it's clear that the courts are an important tool for fighting back and blocking some of the worst uh, Republican voter suppression tactics that we've seen. Um, And again, the courts are that important, and the president will be making a whole bunch of court appointments uh, in the next term. And so we need to be clear on who that president will be, who they'll appoint, and hopefully make sure that it's not Trump. And with that, your Pod Save the People presidential roundtable, we're going to talk about everybody who is qualified for this most recent debate. And I will start the conversation with Tom Steyer. How are we feeling about Tom Steyer, y'all? I met Tom Steyer. I met him. I was at like some event and Tom wanted to meet. So I had a conversation with him and he knows a lot about the environment and was very kind. And then I looked up and he's running for president. And I remember before he's running for president, all the voting rights orgs were having a lot of conversations about Tom because he was like buying up slash like heavily donating to a lot of voter registration organizations. And people kept saying that he was just trying to do it to buy the list of voters. Like he wanted to get the list so he could run. And he's like, I'm not running. This is just for impeachment. Da, da, da. And then lo and behold, he runs. And I'll never forget how shady that whole strategy was. I've been wholly unimpressed with uh, Mr. Starr. I'm shocked that he's doing so well in one of the polls that just came out. Like, that is all advertising. Yeah, I mean, his big thing was impeachment. Like, the thing that I knew him for was all of this impeachment billboards and digital ads and this whole campaign where he invested so much money in it. And now that Trump has been impeached, like, I don't know what his, like, rationale is. I don't know what his purpose is in the race, like, what his issue is. So I I just feel like he did a a pretty good job branding himself as the impeachment person. 
And then Trump got impeached. And obviously, that was because of the House of Representatives and not Tom Steyer, but maybe he helped along the margins. And now, like, I don't know why he's still in the race or what he's like contributing. I do think that since Bloomberg got in the race, who was this even more nefarious billionaire, it took some of the pressure off of Tom Steyer. I think he, Tom is like no longer like the most nefarious billionaire there. He's just sort of like the the lesser evil billionaire. So <laughs> so maybe that's good for him. Maybe it's bad. Like I don't know how that plays. He's the nice the nice billionaire. Yeah, like he definitely like between the two billionaires, it's clear like which is the lesser evil. But again, like I, I don't know what his like cause is that he's in this race still for, and he could be doing a whole lot outside of the race too. What I do find really interesting about him um, is how much he seems to be intentionally focusing on race as a strategy. I was all over the country, it feels like, this weekend, but on the West Coast specifically, and I spent some time in Nevada, and there's an ad that Tom Steyer has that plays, I think it was out there, but I might be getting my cities mixed up because it was a long week, where the ad literally starts off with him saying straight to camera, I am a privileged white male. And I was like, oh, okay. We're, we're going to just dive straight in. And there have been several debate stages, excluding Vegas, where he was not present, um, where he kept bringing this up. And I don't even know if this is a compliment to Tom Steyer as much as it is a compliment, I think, to this collective combination of generations and, and activists and advocates and people who have been pushing this conversation about racially equitable and race-forward language, mindsets, thinking, and obviously policies, because I just don't think we were hearing billionaires talk like that, let alone billionaires who would be running for president, had we not collectively been shifting culture so much on this issue. So I have found that to be incredibly interesting. But Sam, I, I agree with you. I think if you are a candidate who is running on a specific issue, if that issue has an end date and impeachment does, I believe that the responsible thing to do is to take yourself out of the race and figure out a different way to be helpful. I also think that if you are a billionaire, there are lots of other ways that you could be helpful besides putting yourself on the ticket. And so I'm sure he's a nice guy. Apparently he had a whole like hip hop concert in Nevada, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, I feel pretty, pretty indifferent toward Tom. I know that he has done a lot of good work with regard to his political philanthropy. Like I know that he has donated a lot to a lot of voting rights organizations. He's done a lot of work over the past several years around climate change. I think Tom, though, is one of those folks who I don't understand the purpose of them being in the race. And, and it's certainly at this point, like it's clear that he's not going to win. It is also clear that given his resources, he could be incredibly beneficial to a range of different causes that exist outside of the context of running for president in the scope and outside of the scope of electoral politics. You know, something I've heard from folks about, because a refrain has been like, oh, Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg, they got these billions of dollars. You know, why can't they pay off the fines and fees of formerly incarcerated folks who need it in Florida, for example, even though that is not necessarily in place anymore? Something I would heard from folks is that Tom or Mike couldn't do it uh, because it would appear that they are attempting to buy votes because they are part of the race. And so I'm like, well, then Tom Steyer just needs to leave the race and then donate that money to these other things. So it just is kind of, I'm not, 
I'm unclear. And even when he's on the debate stage, I find that what he says is like, we need to focus on beating Trump. We're not focused enough on beating Trump. And that's the only way we can win this election. But then he doesn't say anything about how he's going to defeat Trump. Like it's a strange refrain without providing any sort of solutions. Uh, I do appreciate that he is uh, in favor of reparations. He, I think, has had conversations or read some good books on issues of race and racism. But like I said, he doesn't need to be in the race and he shouldn't be a billionaire because we shouldn't have people who have billions of dollars while other people are uh, struggling to put food on their table. But if you're going to have a billion dollars, there, I think, are more effective ways to use it than the hundreds of millions of dollars you have spent on your campaign. And now, Amy Klobuchar, senator from Minnesota, former prosecutor. I do find it interesting that she was not until recently, experiencing the same level of scrutiny for her prosecutorial record that uh, Senator Kamala Harris was. I think that we can attribute that to a range of factors of which racism is one. But I do, I do find it interesting that she didn't have to account for that record until more recently. And it's clear that she has staked her candidacy on having been a senator in the Midwest who is reelected multiple times and wins a bunch of red districts. So the question I think about, Amy, is are you interested as a voter singularly in defeating Donald Trump or even someone presenting themselves as like, I am the only hope to beat Donald Trump as compared to like, I am someone with a vision for what this country is and should look like. And again, that's not to say defeating Donald Trump is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important. But what do you offer beyond that? And Amy, to my mind, doesn't seem to offer much beyond her presenting herself as the person who can win the Midwest. And those states are important, but you're going to win to do what? And I have not been convinced of what that vision for a better country looks like. Yeah, Clint, I think you hit the nail on the head that I'm really just unclear on the America that she wants to take us into um, versus feeling like I know, I'd say a bit more about what she thinks about the America that we are currently in. Although I feel like so many of our experiences with her on major stages, major platforms, town halls, debates, exclusive interviews, video from major speeches that she gives, a lot of those seem to be more focused on a kind of soundbite humor to present her as relatable and frankly not forgettable, which I think she definitely was before a pretty memorable debate performance in New Hampshire. And I find it really interesting that this kind of recognition seems to be a leading strategy versus having a really compelling vision for us. I think it also obviously goes without saying um, that I have deep, deep, deep concerns about her history as a prosecutor. I agree with you, Clint. People did not keep the same energy when it came to analyzing Kamala Harris's record and analyzing uh, Amy Klobuchar's record. I think that all of the reasons are called misogynoir, but that's just me. Um, I do think, though, that if we are going to be equitable, then we have to engage in accountability across the book, even though I think that there was plenty of bad faith stuff that happened to Kamala that had nothing to do with accountability, but that's a conversation for another day. She keeps being asked now, only recently, about this case of Mayan Burrell, who is languishing in jail right now. And the only answer she continues to give is the prosecutor's office should review all of the evidence. 
And the failure to acknowledge her fault in this situation, I find incredibly disrespectful. You cannot tell me that you have strong plans for how to mitigate the suffering of black and brown communities when it comes to the criminal justice system if you aren't even willing to take responsibility for the harm that you've already done. I'm just not going to buy it. This is my push when we met with Kamala, and this is my push to our team and to her. The things that you're an expert on, I'm like actually expecting you to be an expert on. So she ostensibly knows about the criminal justice system. And Warren was not lying. When you go to the website, Amy just has a paragraph for everything. She has one, two, three, four sentences about her criminal justice plan. Five, if you count the last one that says read more, that is a link to a CNN article that she wrote. But this is for everything. It's just like not fleshed out. It's not clear what the big idea is. It's like the first step act, you know, did good things. I want the second step act. You click on it and it's a link to a CNN article that she wrote about the second step act, which seems to be about a clemency board that would be really helpful. But she already notes the importance of a clemency advisory board and a criminal justice reform advisor. She notes those in the paragraphs before. It's just like sloppy. And Brittany, in the way that you said you were offended by Bloomberg's lack of preparedness, I'm actually offended by Klobuchar's like okie doke on this thing she's putting together as a plan. And I just choose criminal justice because like it's something we're experts on too. But you could say this about all the stuff she's actually put together. It is like... There's just not much meat here. Let's go um, from one Midwestern space to another. Let's talk about Mayor Pete, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I think Mayor Pete is clearly a very intelligent person. He's clearly very smart. I find him to be thoughtful on some things. But there have been a lot of strange things happening with the campaign. Like there was the stock photo of the Kenyan person who was supposed to be a black person on their brochure or something like that. Like they put a stock photo of some random Kenyan person and presented them as like a black person from South Carolina or some state. I don't know specifically, but it was clearly misleading. There was another incident just a few days ago that I saw where Mayor Pete said that he had the support of, I think this black owned restaurant. And then the owner of the restaurant came and was like, I think I met him one time. They ate here once. That's what it was. They ate here once. Um, So there's a lot of strange things happening with that campaign's relationship to the black community, which I think is reflective in the fact that they are polling at, uh, you know, depending on the poll, you look at zero to two or three percent. And, you know, there's some good things in, in the Douglas plan. The primary concern for me with Pete is that it feels as if he is pivoted to present himself as something more moderate than he was presenting himself just a few years ago. Like if you go back and look at YouTube videos from Pete when he was talking in 2015 and 2014, the language he was using and the way he talked about Bernie Sanders, the way he talked about uh, democratic socialism, the way he talked about markets, the way he talked about the Supreme Court was like very different. Even at the beginning of his presidential campaign was very different before he made a a very real pivot on healthcare and and a bunch of other issues that seem very clearly to have been an effort to position himself as the alternative at that point to Joe Biden because he didn't want to be competing against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, further left. And so that feels a little little icky. I don't know. It feels as if you made a series of pivots uh, and choices about what your stances are based on your electability or your, your desire to be elected. But smart guy, Got some baggage. 
What I think is interesting about Pete is I just didn't even know you could continue this far with so little support from black people. I think that's just like fascinating. I hope that whoever does a postmortem on the election helps us contextualize how black people are such an important part of the Democratic base. You literally cannot win without black people. But he has survived this long with virtually no support. The second is that if you couldn't do it in South Bend or at least help me understand how you overcame structural barriers or like help me, you know, like that is, I think what Cory Booker, what's interesting on him, whether you like what he did in, in Newark or not, is that he contextualizes this idea that like he understands the way the government works because of his work in Newark. And like, you might not think he did it as well as he could have, or you might think he did it as well as it possibly could be done. But there was always a context and all of it, we saw a street fight. It's like with South Bend, you're like, I don't know what's going on in South Bend. I read the New York Times fact check and he says, the reality is on my watch, drug arrests in South Bend were lower than the national average and specifically to marijuana, lower than Indiana. And what does New York Times say? This is misleading. African-Americans make up about a quarter of South Bend's population, but account for more than half of drug arrests in the city. You're like, well, that's awkward that you misled us on that one. Next one. Poverty rates for black residents decreased by nearly 40% since Pete took office and poverty rates for Latino residents decreased by half. What does New York Times say? This is exaggerated. You're like, well, what is going on? Like, show me what's going on in South Bend. Like that is like, I just don't, I don't know. I think he is carving himself out as like the moderate in the space. The billionaire cave thing didn't help him. I don't know who that was supposed to sway besides the billionaires, uh, but I don't think that was a great look. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. 
I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So let's move over to Bernie Sanders. We are recording this right after he has won the Nevada caucuses, moving into the South Carolina primary and another debate this week. Obviously, longtime senator from Vermont. So Bernie Sanders, we've talked about him a couple of times over the past, what has it been, like a year and a half or so It has been quite a trip getting to this point, right? We saw him and the campaign in 2016. There were a whole lot of issues about how he uh, was interacting with Black voters and Black communities and whether or not his sort of class-first analysis had space to understand the intricacies of how class and race intersect in America. I think some of those questions remain. And I was talking to some folks who are sort of avid Bernie Sanders supporters canvassers. And they were saying, you know, he is who he is. Like his bread and butter issues have always been his bread and butter issues. His go-to talking points have always been his go-to talking points. And that's just what he's comfortable with. It's what he's going to lead on. It's what he's going to do. And I sort of get that. Some people like that he's consistent in that way. But again, I think those talking points do leave a lot of folks out, right? I think they don't pay enough attention to issues of race, issues of how 
oppression isn't strictly class in America and how class is intertwined with race, is intertwined with gender, is intertwined with all of these different identities that impact and structure opportunity in America. And so I'm hopeful that he can continue to sort of evolve on this and do better. I think we deserve a president that does better. So that's like the challenge with Bernie. I think that there is a opportunity with Bernie as well, and that is that he I'll speak for myself. I think that he has and his team have been the best organizers so far that I've seen. When I was in Iowa, right before the caucus, I talked to a bunch of people who were on the ground there and they were saying that they had door knocks from Bernie volunteers like every single day, but nobody else had knocked on their door or it was, you know, every single week from the other candidates. And so there's just like a frequency and intensity, a scale of the organizing campaign that Bernie has built that I think is probably the second biggest other than what Obama built. But again, it's still impressive and is important to thinking about who can win in the general election, who can mobilize people in the general election, and then ultimately, who can keep the pressure on elected officials and Congress to pass you know, a progressive agenda. So I think that's an asset that Bernie brings to the table that is very important and needs to be weighed in the calculation. I agree with you, Sam. There is no discounting the appeal that Bernie Sanders has made and the incredible ground game of his team. I think that being somebody who campaigned in 2016, you would think that he'd use those four years well. And clearly he did, right? In the same way that we would talk about an athlete during the offseason training and preparing for the next go round. It is very clear that the Sanders team did that and has been continuing to do that on the organizing front. Most certainly he'd be a non-traditional choice for the nominee if he is to win it. And I think that I share challenges with you, Sam, around the intersectionality of it all. And these are questions that I think people know we have famously asked Senator Sanders about. And I continue to have these questions. But I do think the biggest question for me is if he were to win the White House, who would he hire? And I have that question both from an intersectional framework There is clearly a very diverse coalition, especially of young people that has been knitted together by this campaign. How are those folks going to be heard and have the power to act? But I'm also thinking about whether or not there are going to be enough folks in that White House who really understand how to massage Washington into action, because I still have open questions about how much Senator Sanders has accomplished during his career. It's been a very long career, and I think that he stands for a lot of the things that I believe in, but standing for something and holding a value and actually turning that value into policy and being the leader of that on bills, not just amendments, on packages, right, on operating with a lot of different kind of people and not just being a contrarian for the sake of moral purity. I have real questions about his ability to be effective on the policy front on these incredibly ambitious, but I think important policy goals. And I think a lot of that comes down to who your team is. So I've just got some questions about who would be running things in that White House and how would that team ensure that they were really able to move the ball all the way down the field? So I will say that I've been really struck by, particularly after Nevada, the scale and vigor of Bernie's organizing, and just the way that it has invigorated so many young people who have otherwise or are otherwise disillusioned with electoral politics. And I think he has tapped into something that is very real. Issue specifically, one thing I really appreciate from Bernie is that he is the only person in the presidential race um, when it started and at this point who believes that people who are currently incarcerated should have the right to vote. 
And I think that that is absolutely right. And I am impressed and I appreciate that he is not taking the route that feels politically palatable, but instead that he is expanding and pushing the conversation and forcing us to ask, well, why shouldn't incarcerated people be able to have the right to vote if their bodies are counted toward the population of people in that district. I appreciate that. And I think it's a a microcosm of different areas in which Bernie has pushed the conversation in a different direction. And I, I think it is important to acknowledge that every single candidate on the stage, having some of the positions that they do with regard to healthcare and immigration and some other things, what is considered the moderate positions of those have been pushed further left because of how he ran in 2015 and 16. I do share concerns around what implementation looks like for a lot of these things. I think we are all, as I mentioned, deeply indebted to Bernie for pushing the conversation around so many progressive issues further to become more progressive than they otherwise would have been. So how can we create a space that is at once pushing the conversation in a more progressive direction, but is also not actively antagonizing people? Uh, like I think there are some people you need to antagonize, and I think that there are some people who you need to bring in. And that is the question for the Sanders campaign, and will be certainly if he's a nominee, is like, how do you bring folks in who might not be there with you right now. Some people might have real questions about their health insurance. And if they're not team Medicare for all, it shouldn't mean that they are neoliberal sellout, right? Like there has to be a space for thoughtfulness and conversation and nuance from that campaign and its supporters in order to ensure that folks who are otherwise sympathetic to and agree with a lot of the stances that Bernie has feel like they have a place to come into that space. I have a lot of questions about the how of Bernie. This stems from our meeting with him in 2016. I think that that largely remains the same. I think that he has done an incredible job of giving voice to a set of issues and helping to ground a set of issues and making people believe that they're possible. I think that that is undeniable. I will push a little bit. I get a little frustrated by this idea of like the movement Bernie started because I'm mindful that the rhetoric around wealth, like, That was Occupy, you know, like Occupy, it was people and communities who were tired of the billionaire class and who laid the groundwork that people like Bernie benefited from. It was the protest in 2014 that changed the conversation around the country about race. And it's weird that the public conversation has ceded the incredible work of communities to something that like one person started. That just is weird to me. I'm mindful that like communities started these movements and politicians have bottled that and try to figure out how we have structures respond to the energy of movements. Yeah, but like, I just don't know if this is a case of a politician starting a movement. I think that what is true, and Sam, you nailed it, is that they have mastered the organizing part of it. That they like saw it, they saw what was happening, they took risks before anybody was willing to take them, and they organized. And I think that's incredible. I think that there is going to have to be something soon about how we communicate some big ideas around healthcare. Because I think that the right will say, like, with Medicare for All, that you're taking away people's health care. And while we know Medicare for All or any single payer will, like, give everybody health care, they might technically, like, quote, lose their private insurance or just not have their private insurance anymore. And, like, I don't think a lot of people understand the health care conversation really at all. This is, like, not a critique of Bernie as much as, like, we just need to figure out this messaging for Warren and him. Amen. All right. Joe Biden, former vice president of these United States of America. Big Joe, I'll say 95% of Black people I speak to over the age of 50 are voting for Joe Biden. Um, We'll see what it looks like. I mean, South Carolina is coming up. I think while we were recording, Congressman Clyburn just endorsed Joe Biden. And so 
there are many, many, many older black folks who support Biden, who see his political life is deeply entangled with that of Obama's. And Obama is, I think, per polls, the most popular Democrat in the country. Joe also is the person who, you know, you ask some of my my family members and lots of older black folks like they believe and we don't know if this is right or wrong, but it is what people believe that he is not only entangled in the story people have of Obama, but also is someone who they believe the proverbial white Johnny Joe man in the diner in Wisconsin is going to be willing to vote for. Um, which goes into like notions of like people's perceived sense of electability versus like what actually constitutes as electability, which is a sort of made up, fluid, amorphous kind of notion. But I'm curious to see what happens. But we have talked extensively about Joe Biden's very long and mixed record crime bill, busing. I mean, the list goes on and on. So there are concerns. I won't spend this time outlining them as we've spoken about them before, but. Joe is interesting because if you're a black person over the age of 50, you got he has a lot of support. If you're a younger black person, much less so. I think it's been fascinating to see how his front runner status, quote unquote, right? Going into this, he was sort of the clear front runner. All the polls had him ahead. And now he's sort of number three or number four in the polls. It sort of fell off so quickly. And, and I'm just reminded that this is like not the first time he's tried to run for president He's tried to run for president multiple times, and it always seems to sort of flail and like stall out at like this stage of the campaign. I don't know what's going on to explain that. To your point, Sam, Nevada is the best finish that Joe Biden has ever had in a presidential primary that he's running. He's running three of them. He never won a primary. He never won a caucus. And so second place in Nevada is actually his best finish ever. There's a big disconnect with Biden between like what his plans say and what he can actually talk about. So when I read his plan, it's not necessarily the boldest plan around criminal justice, around race, around education, but it is, you know, solidly left. But when he talks about stuff, you're like, Joe, what are you talking about? Like, I'm never convinced when he talks about criminal justice. When he talks about race, when he talks about the crime bill, it's like very platitudinous. I think he's safe. I think, like, you know what you're going to get out of Biden because he's been around for so long. And I think that that is comforting to people, whereas there's some of the other candidates who, like, they've just literally never been an executive before. So you don't know, you don't really know how they're going to make decisions because you've never seen it. When I think about Joe, I'm mindful that, like, all of these people would be better than Trump, but I'm not, like, thoroughly impressed with Biden. I think, honestly, in a different way, one of my major open questions for Vice President Biden is the same open question that I have for Bernie. It's like, who will the team be? Obviously, he's got a track record of getting certain things done. There's so much to do in undoing what Trump has done, as well as advancing us on the things that really matter um, that Trump did not cause uh, and that were in place before him. And so I'm just really curious about that. I think you're right, DeRay, in that there's a level of nostalgia and comfort that people have with him. I am looking very closely at South Carolina because there are obviously infinite number of possibilities that could come out of this. But the prevailing story has been that South Carolina will belong to Joe Biden. And I think especially after the outcome that we saw in Nevada, depending on the ground game and organizing game of all of the candidates, but especially the Sanders campaign, I have a question as to whether or not South Carolina will actually be the runaway victory for Joe Biden as everyone predicted, or if there will be a surprise win from somebody like Sanders. 
But clearly he brings a lot of comfort to people. And I think of all the time about the black voters, my mother's age and my grandparents' age, who remember a time when the franchise was even less secure than it is now. And how Black people have so often had to make a choice that is the most comfortable that they can surmise, even if it is imperfect. And there are no perfect politicians, but I I think that there is a capacity that Black folks, especially older Black folks, have to accept and appreciate Joe Biden for not only being number two on Obama's ticket, but having a Black president's back, right? And not letting his ego supersede the leadership of a Black man. And so a lot of the affection, I think, comes from that. And clearly the Biden campaign knows because we hear about his time in the Obama White House all the time. So I just, I have a lot of open questions about him and I'm really, really curious to see what South Carolina does as far as whether or not they will choose a level of comfort and familiarity, which is not something to be trivialized because people do that out of necessary survival or whether or not folks will go for for something more bold. Two candidates left. Let's go to Mike Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City. I don't have much to say about Bloomberg. He didn't take the debate serious. I think it's gross the amount of money uh, that he is pouring in. I just read literally right before we started Uh, An article came out that he is paying almost 500 people $2,500 to post on social media about him, which is wild. So I'm offended by his brazen sort of Trump-like lack of memory around his role in stop and frisk. Like, that's just so wild to me. He's just like, oh, it wasn't really bad. I changed my mind. You're like, okay, buddy. Uh, So hopefully he's not the nominee. I'd agree. Um, I had a hypothetical exercise that I did for myself uh, after a lot of these clips came out. And I just was thinking like the comments on redlining that he made, the comments on stop and frisk, and really the way he has misled people to think that like this is a thing that he inherited and was like a passive participant in instead of something that he perpetuated and expanded and didn't stop until a judge forced him to. And then also the NDAs and the way he spoke about that. I mean, it's And I I had a moment where I was like, if this were Trump, how would I be responding to it? And how would I be thinking about it? And, and you know, I don't even have to necessarily explain what that is. But like part of what I think is important is I'm not saying that Trump and Bloomberg are the same. I do not think that is true. I think there are differences. I do think that Mike Bloomberg's record is the perhaps most concerning of all of the candidates in this race. And I think that what his candidacy represents, if it were to be successful, is deeply unsettling about the role that money can play in politics. It's early yet. I don't know. We don't know what will happen. But I agree with DeRay that I I hope he is not the Democratic nominee. Last but not least, Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. So I should start by saying I was disappointed by the way that her campaign rolled out with the video and the story of her her understanding of her own Native American heritage, uh, I think it was very hurtful to many Native American people I know. And to her credit, Elizabeth Warren apologized and has made a very real and concerted effort, as I can understand, to engage with the Native community and bring in and lift up the voices of these Native folks. But I do need to name that as something that was concerning when her campaign began. That said... I find Elizabeth Warren to be the most 
thoughtful, curious, and intelligent candidate on questions of race in this primary. I don't think it's even close at this point, with certainly with Kamala and Corey out of the race. I remember it might have been 2014 or 2015 that she made a speech about the history of housing segregation and was talking about redlining in a moment where like it wasn't like right now we're in this moment where like people on the debate stage talk about redlining and the wealth gap, the history of housing segregation and all of these things. And we can almost take for granted the extent to which these conversations are actually very new in this type of arena, in this type of space. Like it was, this was not the case last debate cycle and certainly not the debate cycles before this, that people were having conversations about redlining without having to specifically define it and outline what it is, and that there is a a larger understanding in the broader public about what some of these issues are, thanks to a lot of writers and journalists and scholars and, and activists over the last several years. But I remember that Elizabeth Warren gave that speech way before it was, uh, familiar to the ears of many people. And and I, th- I found that to be really impressive. And I think it is reflective of a larger thoughtfulness and willing to listen to the Black community. I see the people she surrounds herself with and the people who are endorsing her. The thing that I appreciate most is that she seems so earnestly willing to listen and to learn and to evolve. And as she is learning new information and, and taking in the considerations of a lot of people. Like in the last debate, I remember she when she talked about housing, she was centering the lives of black folks. When she talked about uh, the environment, she was centering, talking about the black communities and brown communities on the front line. When they talked about health care, she was talking about home health aid workers and how they make um, so little money. So, so I appreciate that she is bringing in an analysis around the systemic way that racism functions without it necessarily or specifically being tied to like the quote race question or the criminal justice question. Part of my life is studying criminal justice, so that's not to say that's not important. But I do appreciate that she is bringing that frame and analysis into every issue. And I just find her to be a a really thoughtful, earnest candidate. So I, like a lot of us, have met with or spoken with a good deal of the current and former candidates this time around. And there were two things that really struck me about my conversations with Senator Warren. One was that I had to pretty direct feedback for her on her, it, this was early on in the game when her Black maternal health care plan had been announced. And one of the things we talked about was the difference between punitive measures and corrective measures for hospitals that were not doing this right. And I, I thought a lot about my own experience as a teacher under No Child Left Behind, um, where as it was implemented on the local level, often things that were supposed to be corrective, so to provide people instruction so that they could go do better, instruction, resources, support, etc. Those were the very things that were removed. And the punishment ended up trickling from teachers who needed that support to students who then didn't have teachers who were better trained. And so we talked about that for a while. And not only was she really interested, she like immediately told her staffer, like, hey, let's make sure that this conversation goes to the policy team. So to your point, Clint, I feel like I have seen demonstrated that kind of intentional listening, which I, as I intimated before, have not seen from other candidates through personal experience. The other thing that I found really fascinating about her was that she knew the detail. We've had a couple of conversations and she was like, she was not giving me talking points about her plans. Like she 
was so in the weeds in a really thoughtful way um, that I was really impressed by. I keep thinking to myself, what would be true right now if she had decided to run in 2016? If she had run but not won the nomination like how much more prepared could the ground game have been? What kind of could have happened in the off season in the same way that I talked about Sanders campaign? Again, it's an open question. I don't have a necessarily a conclusion about that. I just sometimes wonder what current reality would be if she had thrown her hat in the ring earlier. And I think that your point, Clint, is right about the conversation around um, her identity. And I think what's really important for all of us to remember about all of these candidates is we cannot tell somebody else how to feel about somebody that we may like or think is approachable or think is a decent candidate, whether or not we've made a choice. I think there's so much bandying about right now um, that declares that you are not woke, that you are not worthy, that you are dumb if you don't like the person that someone else has chosen. Instead of us recognizing that you can present the assets of the candidate that you've chosen um, without tearing other people down and without telling other people how to feel. So it's not my job to tell Indigenous folks how to feel. Obviously, Indigenous people are not a monolith and there are indigenous leaders who have endorsed Elizabeth Warren and there are indigenous leaders who um, still reject the actions that she has taken. Um, and again, I am not the judge or jury on that, but I will say that in my experience, I have found her to be a really thoughtful listener. And I think that she displays a lot of maturity, again, not just for the winning, but the governing. But we'll see. We'll see if the appeal has been made uh, widely enough um, and if people are willing to consider the kind of performance that she showed in Vegas as um, predictor of good things to come. You know, I, I really like Warren. I think Bernie gets the what, like big picture principles, what big broad goals should we be fighting for? And Warren gets like the how really well. Uh, and I think that the how, right, the details of how are you actually going to craft this legislation, what aspects need to be in it to make sure that it broadly reaches communities, especially those communities that have traditionally been left out, even by, you know, quote unquote, universal programs. And then the how of how are you actually going to move this through the legislature as president? How are you going to lead on that? What is the strategy? Are you going to abolish the filibuster, which Warren supports doing? Many of the other candidates do not. As we know, that's like critical. Like anything you're talking about plans and, and policies, like none of that's passing without the filibuster getting removed. And we just like know that it's our experience. We've lived it. We've seen how the filibuster has been used. Like this is not, uh, like rocket science. Like it's just, we're not getting 60 votes, um, unless we can, you could show me a different Senate map, but you know, again, like the how matters, the details of what can you do through executive action? What can you do through, what do you have to do through legislation? What are you going to be ready to do on day one, understanding the intricacies of the system, the intricacies of policy? I think Warren gets all of that. And so I think she's the most prepared to govern on day one. Um, but again, like, you know, as you said, Brittany, she didn't have that head start in terms of building sort of a ground game. Uh, I think, you know, Bernie has shown an ability to mobilize mobilize and organize constituencies that Warren has struggled with, right? I think even among young people, a lot of young people support Warren, but even more seem to be supporting Bernie. And uh, Latinos as well, right, have overwhelmingly supported Bernie, at least in Nevada. We'll see how that sort of evolves throughout the primary. But again, I think Warren gets the how, she gets the details, the details matter, and they, have, they will affect people's lives. Yeah, I like Warren. Uh, you know, it is the combination of a set of promises and a plan to deliver them that I think is appealing. I think we would all sort of push them a little bit, both her and Bernie, on the education plans. I think that we'd push them a little bit, both on the criminal justice plans. 
but I'm mindful that we'll be going into a Congress that is likely one that is still one where you have to convert people and work not even across the aisle, but there are some people on the left who don't even believe in some of these things. Uh, and I think that she might be best positioned to sort of build a team and a coalition to do that. She's such a deft debater and like so clear and so focused. And I just have to name the thing that we all know is that if she were a man, this would be completely different. The sexism and misogyny that people have have thrown her way is just sort of wild. So like, even after that last debate where people are like, she was angry. You're like, first of all, everybody should be angry. Second of all, she was so chill. Like she was focused. She wasn't, there were people on the stage who literally were yelling, who were screaming, who cut people off. And I thought her defense of Amy was brilliant. Like that is a leader to me. So yeah, so I'm uh so I like, I like Warren. Uh, we'll see what happens. All right. We've officially gotten everybody mad at us for some different reason. <laughs> but, you know, um, what what should be true in every primary is that you don't let uh, polls or pundits, even us, tell you how to think, feel, or vote. We're just sharing our thoughts, hopefully some provocations, things for you to think more about, to do more research on, to look more into. But at the end of the day... What we really want you to do is make sure that you show up and vote. Check your voter registration at vote.org. Figure out what the rules are in your state. Figure out what is necessary to be registered for in time for the primaries and most certainly in time for the general. And make sure that no matter who you support, that your voice is heard. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.